So I'm going to invite Abby to come up and uh, read uh, for us from Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 45 to 54. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people that had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Thanks, Abby. So the last several weeks, we've been looking at and exploring and tossing around these words of Jesus from the cross. Uh, several weeks ago, uh, we started with, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And, and in those words, we, we see that forgiveness and Reconciliation means taking sin out of circulation. The cross is where sin goes in and it doesn't come out. The next week we, we, we heard um, Jesus to the, the, the good thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. The operative part of that is not paradise, but the with me part. The hope, the, the future, um, even in apparent despair. Last week, uh, Jesus looks down upon his, his mother and the, the disciple whom he loves and says, here is your mother to John and here is your son to Mary. Jesus forms a new family, a family of forgiveness and, and God-withness, and, and those people do that, um, witness that, and embody that for each other. Today, Abby uh, read our fourth word, and, and it's, it's a word that's, that's really hard to, to know what to say about. It's really um, hard to even start. Matthew's gospel, even, um, it's kind of a rare thing he does here by reporting the exact words. Um, not in New Testament Greek, but in some sort of Aramaic. Um, these words were important enough to put in Jesus' own language on his own lips. They almost stand without commentary. I'd like to just kind of look a little more closely because with something that um, difficult to crack into, sometimes it helps to, to just break it down into parts. First, we get this cry from Jesus amidst darkness. My God, my God. To be sure, there's kind of a, a distance in that my God, my God. Jesus isn't appealing to my father, or Abba, as he has in the past. Yeah, I think a little bit of this is just Jesus experiencing a little bit, actually a lot of it, of what we experience when we feel that kind of 
distance, at alienation, looking at someone that we thought we could count on, someone we thought was our friend, our family, someone who, who knows us. And then there's this separation, this divorce. There's an uncertainty and a distance. A couple days ago, I went um, each year um, the Durham Coalition for the Religious Coalition for a Nonviolent Durham hosts a vigil for everyone who's died of a violent crime in a year. And in 2014, there are 25 names. Uh, almost all, maybe all, were African American, if that says anything. Um, that kind of tragedy, that endemic. But at this vigil, there was singing and there was some. Uh, words, um, and mostly there were there were no words. <laughs> there was there was silence, and and uh, they had a gospel singer there, and she she sang "There's a Balm in Gilead," and that was um, for sure an emotional moment. And that sort of balm and healing is what that room needs. But uh, she also sang a song that I'm not fam familiar with. Maybe some of you guys know, and it's it's a song. Um, just a gospel, easy gospel song, almost a kid's song that says, if you don't know what to say, just say Jesus. And, and that kind of, there was a repetition to it, and, and it kind of broke down the room because no one in that room really knew what to say. But simply calling out Jesus. And I don't think it's that different than Jesus on the cross calling out, my God, my God. And we see that it's actually, for all the volume of this, Matthew reports that it was a cry, you know, almost a blood-curdling scream. The people afterwards are trying to interpret it. They don't even know what he's saying. They think he's calling for Elijah or something is happening, and they're trying to figure it out. But even in all the volume, it's not really in rage. I imagine it's more of a, of a prayer that he screams out. It's more of akin to the prayer of a, of a martyr. We get a picture of this in Revelation. These martyrs, they call out, uh, and it says, this is chapter 6, so get your Revelation hats on. Uh, it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In this we see this, the need to cry out, that how... how in the midst of, of no words, sometimes the only words we can muster are, my God, my God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. I think it also tells us that this, the Christian life, the Christian experience that we have, we, we're, we so often don't want to believe that suffering is actually involved in it. In, in, in fact, not just involved, but kind of inherent into, into our Christian life. We run so much in our daily lives, we, we seek comfort. We talked about this in our home group. We seek comfort um, in, in our technology and the way we treat people and, and how we shield ourselves. And meanwhile, we have at the core 
our cornerstone, a Jesus crying, my God, my God, suffering. It's something that we can look at, and this is, this is kind of a new icon that was painted for the 21 um, Coptic Christians in Egypt who were recently executed. And it's, it's amazing to me that this, that this piece came so fast because it was such an automatic reflex of, oh yeah, they're martyrs. Oh yeah, Christianity has martyrs. It's something I don't think we even, we celebrate in, in the American church, but it's so far away from our imagination that that actually might be something. A lot of us growing up in church, when you read these hard passages, you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, <laughs> it, it, we're so quick to, to be like, ah, I don't really know that any of, any of you are going to die for your faith, um, but you know, you might be a little uncomfortable, or there might be a season where you might do something that you wouldn't normally do. But Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, these 21 Egyptian martyrs with their last words saying, my Lord Jesus, in their own language, remind us that suffering is part of that Christian life. My God, my God, why? Why? Maybe why is... is is kind of the, the most chilling, haunting part, but I think it's also the most comforting part of that sentence. It takes for serious, you know, it takes seriously that, uh, that bad things happen to good people and that we can't always explain what's going on around us, that we can't really trust ourselves to look around at this world and, and just do the arithmetic and it all makes sense. Jesus from the cross, God in flesh, cries, why? One of the commentators on this, I love this uh, little take, he, he looks at this and he says, when Jesus died asking questions, we learn that Jesus not only took on our flesh and blood, but he took on our nervous systems. He took on our nervous systems. He came not only to give us answers, but also to ask questions. And the questions sometimes seem weaker than exclamations, but Jesus continually with his life and with his death redefines what strength is. My God, my God, why have you, you, uh, I might understand my family leaving me, my friends, even one of my disciples betraying me with a kiss because they're all human. Humans do bad things. People mess up. But why you? And why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me here? I think inside of that terribly bad news is really good news. I think it's really good news that um, we say, and sometimes we, we say it in vain, we say it tritely, that Jesus is Lord, but I think it, it takes seriously that, that if Jesus is Lord, it means Jesus is Lord over everything, including suffering, including sorrow and despair. Jesus is Lord over feeling like people have hung you out to dry. Jesus is Lord over abandonment and forsakenness and death. He's, He's not, only not, he's not only felt everything that you felt, but he's felt it to such an extreme, such a divine extreme. This, this word from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's been so embarrassing for Christians for so long. We, we've come up with all these devices to explain it away. 
Um, we've come up with these atonement theories that try to take in account for it, but when it comes down to it, it seems like we're trying to protect God from making a fool out of Jesus. Protect God from making a fool out of being God. The, in actuality, this forsakenness, and, and, and I'm, I'm prone to believe Jesus when he says it about himself, is important. Believe that Jesus actually felt forsaken. <laughs> Even as like the Nicene Creed has that moment where it says that Jesus descended into hell, that surely must be some sort of forsakenness, a divorce and a distance, a feeling of betrayal. We, we do this really well in... in, in um, well, we don't do this really well, and, and we're going to do it not very well again this year. But we don't do Holy Saturday very well. Most, most people don't even know that that's a thing, right? You have like Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and then you kind of rest, and then Easter. Maybe on Saturday you make your Easter ham or something. The Holy Saturday is that, that pause, that pause between suffering and death and resurrection and hope. And if you're really digging deeply into it, it is so risky and scary and uncertain because if you try to get into that mindset, you don't know Sunday's coming. <laughs> you don't know what... It's over. So Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is that Holy Saturday moment, that, that remaining, that scary, risky time when you're hung out on a line and you don't think or know for certain that help is coming. And finally, that last word, me. Why have you forsaken me? So many people take this, take these words, take this statement as, some sort of mean God um, striking Jesus. Or, um, and, and, and it's curious because it, we do know that Jesus became sin for us. And, and, and there is a sense of that, of that separation. But I love in this, in this passage all these clues, all, this, uh, all the kind of context around this. There, there's, a, there's darkness and there's there's tearing. There's all this um, kind of rift. And I think that's important for us because we see this, this Jesus forsaken, separated from God, and we understand it more than just circumstantial. This has divine kind of Trinitarian stakes to it. This is a, this is a dance that's been torn apart. This is, you know, the fundamental tear in the fabric of reality that created this world, that sustains this world, and that will bring it to redemption. Why have you forsaken me? That me is the faithful one. The one, the Gospel of Luke says, the one who was to redeem Israel. Sometimes I wonder if this was the conversation that was going to happen on Mount Moriah when, when Abraham was going to kill Isaac. That if, if it had gone just maybe a split second further, if Isaac might turn and say, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
So if that's not heavy enough, here's a little key, a little decoder of something that's really going on in this that, that is not necessarily evident at the surface. Something that um, I think other times and other places, Christians and, and Jews might hear and, and feel and know, and it might be part of their lingo and vocabulary much better than it is ours, but those words from Jesus' lips on the cross that, my God, my God, why, forsake, why have you forsaken me? Those are the beginning of Psalm 22. And there's kind of an arc in these psalms. There's an arc that, that moves from desperation to hope and trust, and, and, and I think that's what's happening on this cross. Because you see, psalms are really sneaky vehicles of hope. They start really really desperate, and they, they, they take a turn. And on the cross, Jesus speaks Psalm 22 in particular, and that's, that's a perfect example of this. If he didn't want to do this, I, I think he might say something like how Psalm 23 starts. Because there's still the, the valley of death in Psalm 23, but the first words of that are what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Instead, he, he chooses the words on his lips are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see movement like this in, in Psalms, like Psalm 6, and you can look all these up when he starts. I'm worn out from all my groaning. My, I flood my bed with my tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes grow weak. And then it turns and says, the Lord has heard my cry. He accepts my prayer. Or like Psalm 13, he talks about forgottenness. And he says, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day? Perhaps you've felt this, you've thought this. And then it turns and it says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises for he has been good to me. Or like the, the restoration of joy in Psalm 42 there's this remembrance. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of, the, of God under the protection of the Mighty One. And then it turns and says, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. If my, if my case here isn't strong enough. So, Psalm 51. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. These are David's words. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then he goes on to say, Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Even as he wrestles with God, even as he takes issue with God, even as he presents himself as separated even by his own doing from God, he looks forward and anticipates praising God. You, you, you flip through your psalm book, you're, you're Israel's hymn book and, and find this, this happen. And, and, and I like to think what Jesus is doing here with Psalm 22 is a lot like, have you ever been in, like driving in, in, in your car and a song comes on the radio that you know and then you have to get out, you have to go somewhere and you only got like the first verse and it's going to bug you the rest of the day until you finish that song, right? You're just going to loop it. Taylor Swift, yes, uh, that sort of thing. But I kind of think that's what's happening here with Psalm 22 when, when Jesus gets that psalm in motion. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words stick on our lips and, and they become a prayer and when we don't know how to pray and that arc, that movement from despair to hope becomes kind of embodied in, in how we carry ourselves. When I was in Div School um, and we were talking about Psalms, I was really bugged. Um, and I think they engineer this. Like, none of this really just happens. So, like, they know that you're going to get bugged by this, so they, they make you that way. Uh, it's like inception. Um, when we're reading the Psalms, I was really bugged by who's whose words these psalms are. Because a lot of these things I've never felt. Um, and then it bugged me and said, well, if I'm not, if I'm not you know, scared, downcast, uh, hurting, maybe I'm the, the one making that person scared, downcast, or fearful, or hurting. Um, and then um, I got over myself a little bit and realized maybe these words are actually Jesus' words, first and foremost. Maybe these words um, that I don't know well, they're not even really mine. Maybe they can only become mine because they were Jesus' first and they anticipate Jesus. And, and so in moments um, on the cross, we, we just see them spilling out of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the ellipsis after that of, of what comes after that. And I, and I want to read uh, the rest of Psalm 22 and, and little parts of it are going to pop up. Uh, to show you that when Jesus starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's, he's alluding, he's, he's drawing us into, and he's, he's spilling out the rest of, uh, of the thought here, even, even if he doesn't say it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, the darkness around him and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In, your, in you our fathers put their trust. They trusted in you and delivered you. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Does that sound familiar? Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth and lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. 
In the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They will seek the Lord. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And it, and it continues on in praise. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. It's amazing how different that is from our, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That arc towards hope, that arc towards vindication. It's amazing to me that, that these words are so inside of Jesus, they spill out at the moment when he needs him. Uh, I think a, a lot of you have probably read or heard about um, Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, Elie uh, Wiesel. Um, he wrote a book called Night. And, and it's, it's a short read, it's an intense read, but I would really suggest it. And there's this moment in there, and he chronicles his time in a concentration camp with his dad. He's 16 years old and, and Buchenwald. And there's this, this scene in there that is, is just, um, it's this happening. It's these, these words and these, these thoughts, these, um, this faith that he doesn't even know that he has, spilling out right at the right moment, and it comes from his dad. I'll read the passage, just, uh, it's not that long. He's talking about being herded into lines and uh, headed to a crematorium. The world, the world's not interested in us. Today, everything is possible, even the crematoria. His voice broke. Father, I said, if that is true, then I don't want to wait. I'll run into the electrified barbed wire. That would be easier than a slow death in the flames. He didn't answer. This is his dad. He was weeping. His body was shaking. Everyone around us was weeping. Someone began to recite the Kaddish. It's the Jewish prayer for the dead. And I don't know whether during the history of the Jewish people, men have ever before recited Kaddish for themselves. And if you'll pardon my Yiddish pronunciations here. Yishkadal, Vayishkadish, Shmei Rabbah, which means may his name be celebrated and sanctified, whispered his father. For the first time, I felt anger rising within me. Why should I sanctify his name? The Almighty, the eternal and terrible master of the universe, chose to be silent. What was there to thank him for? And we continued our march. We were coming closer and closer to the pit from which an internal 
and infernal heat was rising. 20 more steps. If I was going to kill myself, this was the time. Our column had only 15 steps to go. I bit my lips so that my father would not hear my teeth chattering. 10 more steps. Eight. Seven. We were walking slowly as one follows a hearse, our own funeral procession. Four more steps. Three. There it was now, very close to us, the pit in its flames. I gathered all that remained of my strength in order to break rank and throw myself onto the barbed wire. Deep down, I was saying goodbye to my father, to the whole universe, and against my will, against my will, I found myself whispering the words, Ishkadal, Vayakadish, Shmei, Rabbah, may his name be celebrated and sanctified. My heart was about to burst. There, I was face to face with the angel of death. No, two steps from the pit, we were ordered to turn left and headed back to our barracks. And we see in this moment, in this picture, actually, you can't really see it very well, but at the bottom, um, second to the left, is um, Elie Wiesel. And that picture is kind of wild. But we see um, as evidence from his coming face to face with death. He said, I, I stood face to face with the angel of death. We see even as he, he rebels against these words from his father, anger rises in him that, that his dad would have this kind of faith. We see these words spill out. We see, we see that, um, that the spirit conjures and, and musters a faith in us that we don't even have and uses words of scripture, words of prayer, words of song that are hidden so deeply into us. Uh, what are we supposed to do as we leave here? What are we supposed to take away with us? I think we need to experience God's faithfulness. It was a, a great set of songs that I didn't really have anything to do with. Um, but uh, the Great is Thy Faithfulness was the song that Rach walked down the aisle to. So that, that always um, has a particular meaning. We, we did not have a ukulele. Um, and then I think of another, uh, another moment when I experience God's faithfulness in these songs of faithfulness is uh, a few years back, every year I, I hang out with um, college roommates. And, and some of you may have heard me talk about this ridiculous thing called Man's Weekend that rotates sites. And we were in Virginia Beach, and it's always the summer, and we normally um, chase hurricanes, essentially. Like, it's during the middle of hurricane season, and whether we have it in Florida or Virginia or North Carolina, there's an imminent hurricane happening. And uh, in this case, I was driving back from Virginia Beach as the hurricane was touching ground in Virginia Beach, and I, I just thought it would be a good idea to try to race it back to North Carolina. And uh, I wound up, long story short, going over a curb, coming up with a flat tire as the hurricane approached. And I, and I remember sitting in my car as like floodwaters started to rise, literally, you know. And, and the only, like I couldn't even think straight. I was so scared. And the only words that I, I, could, I could think were, were the words from How Firm a Foundation. And actually never let go. Um, and, and like kind of in a weird remix where the verses all blend together. Um, but all I can think of is, is those, were, those were the words I was equipped with 
those words, um, I don't think that dissimilar from the words Jesus was so equipped with in, in this moment of despair. Words that evidence to God's faithfulness. Words that are actually words of faith, even when we don't even know that we have faith. That's how that works. That if we can experience God's faithfulness through things like prayer, and we'll have a moment here in a minute to converse with God, things like confession, things like remembering when we experience God's faithfulness, we rehearse it over and over every week around this table. Things like fellowship when we, when we receive and we, we are Jesus to other people or things like serving when we learn more and more about God's fidelity by being a part of it. And then I think, uh, I think another thing we can do is, is soak in that faithfulness. I think that's what we're getting when we get these words from Jesus is a life so soaked in the Psalms, a life so soaked in worship, a life, as we read last week in John 17, so at one with the Father that, that this knowledge of God spills out, that it's soaked into his bones, into his soul. I think we do that by Scripture. The Psalms are a great place to start. I think, especially the Psalms, like we read earlier, they guard us from some sort of like triumphalism or like skipping too, too fast towards resolution. One of the key things about grief, whether you're experiencing it or trying to offer help, is, is don't, don't get to the good part too fast. Sit with someone. Remain with someone. Be a part of their Holy Saturday. Don't skip too soon to Easter Sunday, to resurrection, to hope. I think another way we soak in God's faithfulness is through meditation, that we reflect often on, on who God is, and that we offer him those praises because they train us. We soak in God's faithfulness through this liturgy, these rhythms of calling ourselves to worship, being called to worship with others. And by singing, actually. Like I said, I'm sitting in my flat Volkswagen with a storm approaching, and all I can muster are some Redmond lyrics and some out-of-order hymn lyrics. And I think as we experience and as we soak in God's faithfulness, I, I think we learn more and more the good news of these words. There's good news that Jesus knows what we're going through. We're never going to out-suffer. We're never going to be out-abandoned. Um, we're never going to out-abandon Jesus or be more abandoned than he was. That Jesus withstood alienation that we'll never know. Like, any sort of divorce or any sort of betrayal that you can experience, it's like, ramped up to the nth degree on what Jesus experienced with his heavenly Father. Also, is, is the end of that psalm. The, the good news is, is, is that turn, that arc, that turns from despair to hope, to praising God and, and that whole scene of the nations, hearing that praise and knowing God and being drawn to God and being able to say unequivocally, he did it even when it doesn't feel like it, even when all the evidence is to the contrary, there's a spark of that, even in the middle of the dark. 
New creation springs up out of old desolation. That even when everything is fragmented and dark and being torn even worse, that repair and communion and reunion is right there, right in reach. The arc of that psalm ends up where we started today with Philippians 2. That Jesus is going to go from being forsaken to, to death, even death on a cross, to all the ends of the earth remembering and turning to the Lord. That's Psalm 22. And then in, in the words of Philippians 2, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That my hope is that we, we experience, we bask in God's faithfulness. And we soak in it so long, we marinate in it that, that we start to have better vision. It, it's like when you're, you, you lock yourself in a closet and, and at first you can't see anything, but your eyes start to adjust so much that you can see shadows and things that you never even knew you could see. Hopefully that we, we're so soaked in, and we bask in, in this faithfulness so much we start to see all those little indiscernible hints that morning is on its way. We can honestly make those psalm words our words that he has done it. That, that would be our witness. That would be how we offer hope to people who have no hope. That we offer healing to people that need healing and that we're hospitable and, and, and let people have room to come in. Because we've experienced all those things. We're, we're in a family that at least someone in this room has experienced all those things. We have each other for that too. I want to pray uh, for us right now and then we'll start a time of conversation and confession and join our words together. Again, trying to get these words so soaked into us, so available for us that the Spirit can use them uh, for God's glory. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your son who experienced abandonment and, and forsakenness so that we don't have to. We thank you that he died um, in our place and for our sake. We thank you that he drank the, the dregs of that sort of darkness, that sort of fear, that sort of loneliness. We thank you that um, mysteriously you've, you allow us to participate in that so that we all also might participate in Jesus' rising, his victory. Your vindication of him as the king and the ruler of this coming kingdom. Father, I, I pray for everyone in this room, um, some who might be experiencing this kind of forsaken moment at the present, Lord. I pray that you be near them, that you equip them with words of hope, that you give them uh, vision and, and sense um, of how near you are and, and that you've done it, you will do it, and you already have done it. Lord, that's uh, the basis of our faith, that you've already done it. 
take away any pressure for us to do it ourselves. Take away any hurt of us having to to make a way for ourselves to, to protect ourselves. Uh, Father, we we thank you so much for your son. We thank you that you love this world so much that you gave your only son to us. We thank you for your spirit who who makes this real in our lives, who who breathes life into words and emotions and faith that we don't even know that we have, that makes our cold hearts of stone, responsive hearts of flesh that can praise you. We thank you so much for that. Uh, Be near to us in our time of conversation. Speak to us. Let us hear well. Be near to us in our confession. Uh, Have mercy on us, Lord. 